0: Hello and welcome to Episode 4 of Season 1 of the Memory League Podcast, a weekly show which features interviews with game developers. My name is Rob Carter and my guest today is Brian Fargo, founder and CEO of Inexile Entertainment. Brian Fargo is a versatile developer with experience in just about every aspect of the game development process. After creating his first title in 1982, he founded Interplay Productions, a company which grew to over 600 employees at its height. Between its founding in 1983 and acquisition in 2001, Interplay developed and published some of the most popular titles of the time. As a developer, Brian contributed heavily to games like Wasteland, Fallout, Bard's Tale, Battle Chest, and many, many others. He also oversaw Interplay's publishing projects, which include games like Descent, Baldur's Gate, and Sacrifice. When Titus Software acquired Interplay in 1998, Brian left the company. He joked that he was in exile, and that phrase became the name of his new studio, In Exile Entertainment. In the years following its founding, In Exile created The Bard's Tale, a series of iOS titles, and a major console release called Hunted The Demon's Forge. In 2011, In Exile launched a Kickstarter campaign to revisit one of Interplay's most successful properties, Wasteland. It was a resounding success, and Wasteland 2 released in 2014 to favorable reviews. In Exile's next title, Torment Tides of Numenera, also makes use of an interplay property, and is still in development. I'm really pleased to have Brian here today to discuss his extensive experience in game development and in publishing. Hey Brian, thanks for taking the time.
1: Hey, my pleasure, my pleasure.
0: So, Wasteland 2 released a strong reviews, and the campaign to fund Tides of Numenera was very successful. How would you characterize the energy right now at In Exile? What's the culture like there?
1: Well, you know, we've been around for a while, and so I've been... Really, as a company, trying to find my way for some time, I and mean, we started in two thousand and two. So this is before there was uh, a digital distribution system. So you know, it was it was okay. We would do product for publishers, and you know, heavily limited as to what kind of product we could do and how we could do it. And then 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 iOS started to happen, and, but there was a you know a change to free to play, and so it, you know, it took a while to really find. A business model that worked for us so even at this company we we started small we went up as high as 70 people and then we went all the way back down to 12 people as I had to reinvent myself so now here we stand about 40 people and I can say that the mood at this company has never been better we are in control of our destiny we're making exactly the kind of games we want I would say that almost if not every single person who's working here is working on what they want so it, it's a great mood, and uh, we're very, very
0: fortunate. Do you think that kind of culture and energy would have been attainable without crowdfunding?
1: <clears throat> Highly unlikely. I mean, at least for us, I can say that. There, there's always a few, there's a few companies out there that have, I mean, there's, it's not like no companies have it, but it's very hard to come by because you have the mobile business, which is so hard. It's such an edge case, right? So I'm sure you have a company like Supercell who's having a great time, but <clears throat> it, it drops off fast. And then there are very few AAA developers that uh, out the, do external work for publishers. There's, you're only chasing just a handful of contracts. And and that's a very schizophrenic business. I mean, that's enough to, to drive anyone crazy because you work on a tile If it doesn't sell well, you're out of business. And then you're spending a great amount of your time during production trying to make sure you have the next deal lined up so you can make payroll when everybody rolls off of it. So you know we, we are fortunate so so you say without for for us absolutely not crowdfunding was it it was the hail mary pass it was the ability to get wasteland funded i honestly had been trying for 20 years to get it made and and i, I, I it's not like i had tried every conceivable route so it was wonderful when everybody stepped up and so now we have control of our destiny we uh if i want to spend more time on a game i do so and you know every, every product you make all these Sensibility calls along the way about what's important what's not important, and we're always constantly adjusting and so without if you're under a publisher contract you you have to to some degree adhere to whatever you said you were going to do in the beginning, but I change what I want to do in the be- you know from the beginning to end that's part of the creative process, so we don't have to do that, so it's really provided us a perfect environment.
0: I spoke with uh Chris Avalon near the beginning of Wasteland Two, and he told me. Um, he he just remarked how smooth and quickly things were progressing without the involvement of a publisher. Has that been your experience uh, throughout the development of Wasteland 2 and throughout Torment? Has crowdfunding changed the style and pace of development significantly for you?
1: It has. I'd say that I'm picking up a minimum of a 30% efficiency because I'm not doing it for somebody else. And the reason why you picked that up is because, so one, in no particular order, like I said, I like to shuck and jive as I'm going. I don't like to absolutely stick to the letter of the law of whatever I said I do in the very, very beginning because, you, you, I mean, sensibly wise, you're going to make the same game, right? But you, you, the order of events and things like that are going to change. And, and if you're if you're trying to just get paid, it may force you to do things in an order you don't want to do. Um, and then also proving that we know what we're doing all the time. Every 30 days or every 60 days, you lose huge amounts of, 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 of resource effort. So if they say, you know, you got to come up, you got to show this milestone, if we have to freeze the code and make everything work and show it off to somebody, I can lose two to three weeks just like that. And in those big projects, if I'm burning through $500,000 a month in development costs and I lose three weeks, that's a lot of money. And if you do it enough times, whatever profit you might have been able to make will be gone. And so you're always trying to show that off. And then for for trade shows, you got to throw stuff together. So it's kind of a forced march. And so because I don't have to prove that we know what we're doing. So so we work with our backers, right? So we keep them informed. But the big difference is they don't say, well, Brian, until we see this next thing, we're not going to send you the money. They trust us. And that's the beauty of it. And I think trust is the main thing. And that's the biggest. It's the antithesis of a publishing deal. You get a 50-page contract. And it's got a list of horribles they they can they can uh, you know you get penalized for this you can they can take the property away from you and finish it without you and not pay you blah 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 right so all those kind of horrible things. Whereas with crowdfunding, it's like no no, Brian, here you go. here's the money up front. we trust you and uh, and it's beautiful and and that's why it was so critical that we develop um, deliver a really good game with wasteland too because I take that trust super
0: seriously so on that subject of trust. Um, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the inherent risk that comes with making financial bets on games or on any type of creative content. As someone who has worked both as a developer and the head of a publishing entity, what do you think the best way is to minimize the risk? How do we maximize creative potential on games, but also make pragmatic, responsible business choices?
1: Ah, well, that's a million dollar question. (laughs) Uh, um, well, 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 let me think. I mean, I always tried to find a balance when I was in interplay. So let's let's look at it from a practical perspective when I was running a, a fairly large publisher. So I would try to balance it with totally innovative, unique, creative products. So that's why, like you saw, games like Giants and Sacrifice, uh, for example, those just happen to be two shiny games. But we had a uh, Planescape tournament would be another one. But you'd mix that up. We'd have a Descent 2, and we would have. A Baldur's Gate 2 and a Fallout 2. And so so uh, I think it's a mixture of, the, of those things. It's difficult now. I, 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 I sympathize with the big publishers because their overheads are so big and they have to swing for the fences every time that they start getting in this pattern of having to release a new title every year, every fiscal year, right into the franchise. And, of course, if you're not careful, you'll drive a franchise right into the ground. And so, I mean, again, again I, I have to come back to, with us, I don't have to ship a Wasteland 3 this fiscal year or anything crazy like that. I can take my time and really let it gestate a bit and think, you know, which things really resonated? What are the things that really bugged me? And what are the things I love that I'd like to see more of? And and let's, you know, let's have a longer conversation with our community and get those same thoughts from them so we can really kind of spend that time and craft it. I think the word craft is is is, is very applicable to what we're able to do. So... You have to think about franchises, and of course, you know, and you can say, hey, I mitigate some of that risk by working on some things you've at least heard of before, right? I mean, we did some very innovative stuff with Wasteland, and I can tell you that, that Torment, Tides of to Numenera, is very, very innovative. I mean, the writing style is fantastic, the visual style, everything about it. There's not, there's nothing that screams cookie cutter in this thing, right? But at least I've helped mitigate it to some degree by by doing something that, well, one, my guys really wanted to revisit it anyway, but, but also by the fact that, that there, there's, there's a bit of a following behind it.
0: Sure. I, I think publishers often try and mitigate the risk by putting constraints on, on designers, on, uh, on enforcing certain creative choices. Uh, what do you think the correct way to handle that is? Do you think publishers should be entirely hands-off, or do you think, do you think they should be making creative demands when publishing a game?
1: I think that there's a few things that I, as a publisher, would demand, right? But then I would I would give a lot of leeway with everything else and a lot of trust. You know, I'll give you I'll give you an example, right? Which was so when we signed up, Descent, it was originally going to go to TriMark Pictures, and so we jumped in. We got Descent, and I very much give my producer credit for bringing it in because it looked like hell when we first saw it. It did not look good, but we kind of saw the potential. And so as we were marching along, I wasn't questioning how many ships and and what the sound effects were and the level design. I I, I wholly trusted the developer. But at one point, they said, you know, on the release, Brian, I don't think we can support the internet, uh, internet gameplay. And so that's when I would step in and say, you know, guys, this product, we're not doing it if it doesn't support the internet. Like, that's that's what we're hanging our hat on here, right? You have to do that, right? And so... They said, "Okay, okay, fine." And we ended up doing internet support, which was a big part of the seller, which was going online and playing with other people. And so, to me, that's where I think you should step in and go, "Okay, this is going to gut the whole thing." But, but that's kind of where where I draw it. So, so I've always said to publishers, you know, you go through this funny process where you, where you you pitch the product, right? You, you you give a, a comprehensive vision for what you're going to do. You you usually give art type uh, sort of a, a focus, what the art's going to look like. And they say, we love it, right? And then they sign the contract, and the next day they don't trust you anymore. It, it's sort of this bizarre process, right? So I've always said to publishers, and I used to do it with my – whether I was working with Bioware or any of those guys, say, you know, we, we either you know believe in them or kill it. Right, but there's not a middle ground where you get to micromanage every little decision. I just don't think that works that well.
0: Yeah, in, in an interview in uh, with Rock, Paper, Shotgun, this was from 2013, you said the following about um, Hunted, the Demon's Forge. People don't know sometimes how little the developer can have input-wise into a product, even if it's theirs. The opening cinematics weren't done by us, the voice casting wasn't done by us, we didn't get to direct the voices in the game... There are all these things that go into it that are just pulled away from the developer that we had no control over. End quote. So, is is the problem to you with a lot of these publishing deals that um, publishers try and exert creative control over things that they should not?
1: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. And and and, you know and and without naming publishers, right? But you as a developer, and 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 I'll talk more broadly about it because you know there's a whole conversation I have with other developers in the business, and I mean top developers who are, who have done work for other publishers or, or or in some cases still are. And, you know, we get into these ridiculous conversations that you think like we're being punked, right? Like that being, you know, made issue to do demands of things that are just not possible. You know, I mean, we, we had a product one time we were working on and they wanted us to, we had to spec out what it would be, be like on the PlayStation, I think it was the two, but but it hadn't come out yet, right? We had to just guess, right? Well, it didn't have the power we needed to do what we said. So we, what we wanted. So we wanted to change it. They said, you know, you can't do that. We said, no, you don't understand. The hardware can't do it. It's not us. They said, don't give us a year away or the highway speech. And so we had to march down a path that we knew would end us having hitting a wall, you know. And so, it, so yeah, I mean, the publishers come in, they want a certain way, and if you don't do it that way, they'll just withhold payment and put you out of business. So you really have no leverage. You have, you, you're trying to, you're trying to protect jobs. So this happens a lot, right? And again, not all publishers do it, but but that is the case. And so uh, certainly uh, there was a lot of things outside of our control for Hunted. And and that I, I found it a frustrating process because it's always our reputation that takes the hit, <laughs> right? You know, Or if a product goes out buggy, we don't even – typically the developer is not in charge of the QA department. They may have a few QA people, but they don't have a team of 30, 40, 50, 100 people in QA. And so the publisher has to generate the bugs and then give you time to fix them. And so uh, if a product goes out buggy from a publisher, I guarantee you they knew they were there. Uh, It was just a matter of someone said, we're not waiting any longer, we're putting it out. And then so the developer takes the hit. So yeah, it's a very frustrating process. Um, You know, you you have to be more like, like Valve, for example. They're gonna take the time to get it right, or Blizzard's gonna take the time to get it right. And that's really the elephant in the room, right? These guys, the top ones, don't let that stuff happen. They they do not they, they they work and they work and if it takes them eight years, it's going to take them eight years. And that's where that's often where the where, where the magic comes from.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it really bothers me because I've worked um, for years as a, a programmer, and <laughs> to see to see people like Obsidian get blamed for bugs. You know, I know that there are no bugs that the engineers at Obsidian can't fix, uh, exactly. but it, it still gets pinned on them and. Yeah. Uh, you remember that Metacritic deal? There, of course I do. Of course I do. Right,
1: and of course, and, and so and my, of course, I think. Well, gosh, why can't you just use sales as a, as an estimate to pay a bonus? Right? Who who cares if the Metacritic rating is, is ten? If the thing sells ten million copies, give me a bonus. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, give me a bonus. So whatever. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah, know, it's it. It was that. It, it got to the point where. I just stopped. I stopped doing business for for publishers. I just rather not even be in the business anymore. It it just got so frustrating.
0: Yeah, you know that Metacritic thing when that happened, there was some discussion on both sides that um, you know people said it was a horribly exploitive thing to put in a contract, but then other people would say, well, Obsidian still signed it. But it sounds like the leverage is set up, like the the balance of power is skewed in such a way that you you have to sign things like that. Is that your impression?
1: Well, I get, you don't have to sign anything, right? but but ultimately, you are you do you don't have leverage. It's not like a director. like if, if if I'm in the movie business and you're trying to get me to come work on your film, I could sit in my house all day long and negotiate for a year because I have no guns at my head. But as a developer, you got you got you got people and families depending on you. So you know the, the, it's a rarefied era of people that can just take their time and and and, and work out. Uh, a, a contract to really a fair advantage point. So,
0: you know, so do they have
1: to sign it? No, but you know, there's not a lot of choices out there either.
0: It, it does seem like publishers will take advantage of a developer's dire financial situation. There, well, are-
1: I, I, I would say, you might. I was in one. I was in one negotiation. It was very funny. So I forget. Like we were getting like I forget the royalty rate exactly, but basically they said if we were late. It was set up such that I'd, I didn't make a dime until they had made $20 million, right? And this was after they'd given me my money, uh, spent the marketing money, cost of goods, I mean, everything, right? So once they had made $20 million a profit, we would then start to get something. And so, fine, you know, that's... The, and I don't. And by the way, I don't mind a publisher making more money because they are taking the risk. That's those are the economics of the business. So it is what it is. But they wanted there was something where where the product was going to take longer, and really it wasn't solely due to our reasons. There was all sorts of changes in hardware and what they wanted, and et cetera. And so they wanted to give us you know more advances to cover it, which is nice. But it's really your money, right? They're giving you your own money as an advance. So. Even if you get the extra money, you're, you're just in the hole more, but that's fine. But then they wanted to lower the royalty on top of it. So I said, Well, hold on a second. I'm already sucking on my own money. Let's do the math. So I'd go through the math. I said, Now I don't make any money until you make $35 million in profit. I said, You know, don't you think that once you guys are up, say, 20, 25 million, that maybe we deserve just like a million dollars? Like, you, I don't mind you making the most. And uh, they said, no, 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 we don't. And so that's kind of, you have to, that's, that's the attitudal thing that's going on. They don't think it's fair, yet it's your idea, your pitch. You're doing 100% of the work. You're killing yourself, but they don't really believe you should make any profit, uh, even on, on a product which has made them tens of millions. So if you start, if you kind of keep that in mind as a starting point, you can imagine why these negotiations are very difficult.
0: You know, the interesting thing to me about your career is that you've been on the other side of the desk, too. You know, you've been in the publisher's position, and I'm curious um, how you did it differently then, and, you know, if if the climate today would make you change your approach. You did mention that, you know, the financial risk in these AAA games is is much larger than it used to be.
1: What The amount of money you have at stake definitely changes things, and in some ways it's made people a little bit crazy. Uh, so... I guess for me, though, I mean, I mean, there's got to be a bit of a win-win scenario with this stuff. There just has to be. So I don't know how, what my deals would look like, but I certainly would have structured it that if we were making a bunch of money, they'd make money, too. I, I think so. So I, I would never steer away from that as a concept.
0: Uh, is that how you structured things when you were at Interplay? Was there, um, like, royalty sharing?
1: Oh, yeah. All, all of our developers made money. I mean, BioWare was making more money than Interplay was. <laughs> they were more profitable than we were at that time. Now, I had other things that were causing that. There were you know, bad business decisions, but at the end of the day, BioWare did great. Parallax made a lot of money. A lot, we had a lot of people making a lot of money. They they all had royalties.
0: It seems sort of, I mean, if you're a publisher, you're employing a bunch of people. You're, do, you're delegating creative work to people who are experts in that field, yet you're also making demands of them, creative demands, which seems counterintuitive you know, well, you know
1: the, the, and the thing—the thing about it is, I—I I would have this conversation, which was that, you know, mo- most publishers have internal teams too, and they would never say, "Hey, if you don't get this done by next month, we're not going to give you paychecks." But yet, as an outside developer, you would be threatened for your paychecks, you know, about every eight weeks. So, and 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 so the problem with that is not a very motivated. From I can tell you from a creative perspective, because you know, I'm I consider myself more of a a game producer, more than anything, but I'm heavily involved in the weeds of design and creative ideas and putting in, looking for the uh, kind of the moment, I should say. And if you are under pressure, where you don't know if you can make payroll every eight weeks, it's really hard to be clever and creative. It's just hard. It just, it just weighs on your mind. And so again, I get back to the crowdfunding, where you know all sorts. You know, I, you know, I have like my I, I'm with Wasteland too. Like I found my, my, uh, my grandfather was a, uh, a fire and brimstone preacher, like, like, like a real revival guy traveling through the Midwest, and he died at a very young age. I never met him, but he cut an album in the 50s. And so I was like, oh, God, I got to get him in with the game. So I actually, got, I, I lifted the track off that album, and I got Mark Morgan to weave it into one of the tracks. Mark loved it. It's kind of cool. I got my grandfather in it, right? I love that kind of stuff. I'm not going to come up with it if uh, if I'm sitting around my desk wondering how am I going to get all my guys paid. You know what I mean? And so so to me, that's the best part of it that we could sit around and 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 we just spend ninety percent of our day thinking how can we make this game clever and interesting and more fun than all these other things of like, gosh, we got to put a demo together and we got to get it to a show, and again, we got to get paid. (laughs) You know, I got to get paid. Got to get paid. Got to get paid. It's always getting paid, and uh, it, it just makes it very very difficult.
0: You know that reminds me of something. Um, recently, I interviewed Jordan Weissman, who has a career that's around the length of yours. You know, who is making games in the '80s, and uh, he told me um, the audience can tell if you didn't have fun making it. You know, it's evident in the final product.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You you can feel it, and 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 it's a lot of it's a, it's the little things that come across. That make it shine. I'm 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 a big believer in the individual moment. What one little thing can be can be can be the difference between really catching somebody and th- and thinking the product special versus being generic.
0: Sure. Um, it, it sounds like from your description of these deals that a lot of the problem um, is uh, when you're an independent studio. What do you think, I, I mean, is it the quality of these publishing deals that's contributing to the dearth of independent studios? Because there used to be a lot more, you know, stuff like, you know, we used to have id Software, Irrational, Arcane, like in the beginning of the, in the early 2000s, there was a lot more independent AAA developers, and now there just isn't, and is that why?
1: I mean, things have consolidated where, again, you look at like Activision, they don't do that many big titles a year. They They have to do really, really big stuff they get behind, and so... They look at it and, and you know, like, like the Skylanders, for example, they, they, they it, it's, it just makes more sense for them to say, look, we're going to take all this risk. We're going to take hundreds of millions of dollars of risk. We don't want to pay outside royals anybody for do it. We'll just, you know, hire the team and get it done ourselves and pay all the payrolls. And so th- there just aren't that many contracts for those kind of teams to be, to be chasing. Uh, so that's why I mean th- there's this indie explosion which is different so there in reality there are more developers than have ever existed before but it's that it's that it's the, it's the mid-level developers that have been wiped out right cuz you you got the, the AAA developers not a lot and then you got internal teams you got the mobile scene and then you got this kind of in between like us and obsidian as an example or double fine and you know we you know we we were a dying breed until crowdfunding came along
0: yeah there's only a few that i can think of now you know in exile obsidian you mentioned double fine gearbox but a lot of these um studios that were well known for being independent AAA studios just don't exist anymore
1: yeah yeah well things
0: keep changing you know you, you gotta be looking
1: forward all the time
0: yeah you you mentioned um the difficulty of meeting milestones in order to get paid and uh there are a lot of rumors that some publishers will act in a predatory way with regards to milestones. That they will um, threaten to withdraw funding, you know, over technicalities of whether or not a milestone has been hit. And then, when a developer is really low on funds, try and buy them at a very low price. Have you experienced stuff like that?
1: Yeah, that happens. That happens. It's <laughs> it's, it's tough out there, baby. Uh, yeah, I was I was on uh, on a press tour for one of our games, and and uh, the publisher wanted to change the date. They wanted, well, they well They had made a bunch of changes and we said, you know, it's going to move it out of the year. And they said, well, you can't do that. We're like, well, you, you know, I said, dude, I, I said, I built a house one time and when I had my contractors make changes, I never told them, by the way, that better not affect how long it takes. Like even I said, you just can't make changes and have it not affect things. And so they said, I don't care, you know, blah, blah. And so anyway, we said, it can't be done. Anyway, so I was out on tour, and they sent the producer down to my office, and he went to my employees and said, look, we need to pull the date in. And so my guy, they don't know. They're like, we can't do it. They got the same a- same answer. They said, well, if you don't do it, we're going to shut this company down. So I had to get a call on the road and say, Brian, they're down in our office threatening to close us. So, you know, that stuff happens.
0: <laughs> I guess that happens, but it's it's sad.
1: <laughs> you know, like I said, you know, and no, you, know, you don't want to talk about it too much because people just see it as your... Kind of whining about it, so you don't want to, you know, get into it. But de- definitely, uh, when I have
0: lunches with my developer friends, I think
1: the stories would blow you away.
0: Well, I, I don't think anyone could accuse you of whining about it, since you ran Interplay, and you know, we're on the other side, and you did fund projects.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm proud of the way we work with our developers, and and I, I and and to this day, I have ended up doing work with with both many of the developers that I used to work with, and and many of my employees that I used to work with.
0: All right, I'm going to switch gears uh, now for a little while and talk about Interplay. You began your career as a developer, you know, as someone who was in the trenches and making creative decisions. Uh, but at its height, Interplay was really large and you were in an executive position. At that point, I imagine you can't be too involved with you know, the details of any one project. Um, how did you deal with the shift in your role as Interplay grew? How did you feel about becoming an executive and in a managerial position?
1: Well, when we got really large, I was miserable. You know, it was uh, it was I was doing anything but product. Uh, you know, it's a slow process, and uh, you, you know it kind of pulls you out of it. I, I mean, I was always involved in, like, I was like a network executive deciding every product that got made and making sure it hit every sensibility point, and that the team it was the right team, and it was and they and they and they were thinking right, and the, and so I would make sure that it that it was everything was moving along and once it started to like you could tell when a team started to fire in all cylinders and once it started to do that i could then not worry about it and i could move on to something else and then other products i would have to kill that you never even heard of before and so um so so that was my the most important thing i could do but i really couldn't I could not affect things as much as I wanted to. I could go into a room and say, "Hey, do this and that," but I could leave, and they could know they might not see me for a month. So, you know, that's going to have a, a different dynamic of when I can't really stay on top of stuff. So, it, yeah, it got to the point where with that many employees, you know, I'm, I'm managing, you know, the slate. So, I'm still trying to do original and clever stuff and get people in there. But, you know, you're dealing with uh, it, 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 you have a whole new set of people that you're that you're reacting to because you have you have investors. You have board members, you know, you have lawyers, and, you know, there's all these people that are now dragging down on your time. So uh, I definitely was anxious to get back to product development. After Interplay, I left, took, you know, a couple months off and just, and just sort of chilled out and organized, you know. W- we had CDs back then, so I organized my CD collection, and I played a bunch of games, and I took some, I said, okay, all right, I've, I've had enough time to jump back into it.
0: Yeah, I have to imagine that the end of Interplay was a, kind of a difficult time for you. Uh, from my reading, it, it sounds like after Titus Software took over, the culture was just unpalatable to you. You left and then were threatened with legal action from the company that you founded. Um, if you could, can you tell me a little bit about the end of Interplay and the role that Titus played and your subsequent departure?
1: Yeah. Universal MCA came in as an investor in the company, I think it was like around 95 or 96. And they liked, they really liked what we were doing. And so they invested $10 million into the company. And for me, that was a huge amount of money. We'd, we were always operating with less cash than everybody. We just had to be clever. <laughs> but yet we were doing some great stuff with Fallout and Descent and everything else. We never had much money in the bank. So here comes $10 million. Well, at the same time, the cost of development starts to skyrocket. And so that $10 million would seem like a lot as we moved on to uh, CDs or multimedia, all of a sudden that wasn't such a great cost uh, or a great uh, investment and we had bought Shiny Entertainment because I saw that mo- most of the publishers had this one kind of seminal title, except for Electronic Arts. Uh, EA always had the sports line, but you know, you looked at with, whether it was uh, Take-Two had Grand Theft Auto and EA or um, uh, THQ had Wrestling and Activision had Tony Hawk like there was this one game that could just carry you through Everything and they and then they ended up having Guitar Hero. There was always like, the, well, actually, they bought Guitar Hero. T- I me take that back. So, but it was like Tony Hawk at the time for them. So, so we had Baldur's Gate, which was a great title, but it was a top PC game. So instead of millions and millions of copies, it was like a million and a half, and we had a pretty heavy royalty load to BioWare and TSR. So you almost had to cut that number in half from a margin perspective. So. Uh, it wasn't the seminal margin hit that we needed to get us through. Like if I, if I didn't have a royalty load on Baldur's Gate back then, and I'm not complaining, don't get me wrong, but if I didn't have any margin to pay out on that title, it probably would have been a different story. But so we were seeking that hit and I saw that the action was on console. We were behind in the curve. So we bought shiny entertainment to help be our answer to that. Um, they had done earthworm Jim. Uh, perfect. Right. Well, of course, the first thing Shiny does is MDK. They do a PC game, and they work on Wild 9 for three years, So, and it didn't sell well. So we never really got our console transition, so that that really hurt. So that left us in a difficult position of debt, so then I had to go out and do a public offering, and in the middle, I started off in the public offering, and it was a pretty strong market. In the beginning, when I started, people went, God, Brian, your timing is perfect, right? By the time I got to the end of the show, uh, I think some, I think maybe GT or somebody had put out some bad numbers, and then the market it just deflated. And at the end of the thing, they went, Brian, your timing is the worst, right? <laughs> All that happened in four weeks' time. So we raised half as much money as we had hoped to. And, uh, and that's a whole story in it. So I had to close that deal on the phone, jumping around in my underwear from my house in order to even get it. If I hadn't closed the IPO deal, we would have gone out of business. So, but I only reduced the debt in half. So here I was, uh, at one time at Interplay, we had 50 million in debt. So I would wake up every morning. How am I going to pay off that 50 million? So talk about stress. So we did the IPO and that got rid of 25 million, but it still left us short. And I can't operate with that kind of debt over my head. So I had to find another partner. And that's where Titus came in because the French market was exploding. They were like, uh, like a dot coms at the time and 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 they were able to buy a a less than 50 percent share of our company and consolidate our revenues so, so they in France look like they've gone from 20 million to 150 million it's quite a story so they end up raising 150 million dollars of cash 50 to them 50 to us 50 to virgin and so that then they became our partner uh, but pretty soon our, our we we had very different attitudes about the market and what was important and of course we were in a transition time and we weren't making money and the problem is when you're not making money everything every idea looks like it was a stupid one (laughs) right so so you're not even even if you're doing the right stuff but it's taking a while it's difficult And, and of course you have other companies where they have like one hit management team might not be that bright but they got that one hit everybody looks brilliant. That's just the way of the world. So 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 we were in, in a tough one and trying to make the transition over and it, and it wasn't working. And so I, um, and I mean, there's so many more stories to it than this, but I, I said, you know, we really need to find a buyer. So I found a Chinese company, um, a PCCW, uh, one of them, this guy, Lee Kashing, who was his son. Was, he's the richest guy in Hong Kong. and and I and I'd got the matrix license. Uh, very much thanks to uh, David Perry and him working his relationship with Warner Brothers, which was a very valuable license. And so the Chinese company came in, and they were going to they they were they were going buy the company. And really, Titus over-negotiated their value for their shares, and the deal blew up. And it was heartbreaking because it was a very, very close deal. I had negotiated for months. I'd gone up there to the point where they said, Brian, bring your signing pen. We're done. And I drove up there. I walked in the room, and I looked at their faces. I said, "What's wrong?" And they said, "The deal's off." And I thought they were messing with me. And they said, "Our risk committee has said this deal uh, is going to cause too many problems. We're going to get sued for it. You know, it's it's too difficult." Brian, you've been great, but sorry, it's done. And so I tried to make a couple of attempts at uh, maybe getting EA or THQ. I couldn't get the pricing that I had with the Chinese. And so then I then I was going to do a deal to, to do one more money raise uh, with a local firm that was going to give us put us uh, in the black cash wise for the first time in years because I had worked it down because I had done a deal with uh, Microsoft to pre sell uh, some uh, Matrix rights so I, I had worked our fifty million all the way down to five million of uh, of, of uh, debt which. It was a huge relief and I was gonna do this one last deal to put some money where we actually had cash in the bank for the first time and I don't know how long. And they said, you know, Brian, we think we can do a better job. And uh, we might even just do it wanna do a hostile takeover. And now I'm exhausted at this point, having spent the last I don't know four or five years trying to work down fifty million in debt, killing myself, right? Stressed out to the max. And I finally said, you know what guys, you don't don't do a hostile takeover. Here are the keys. Half at it because you know what I can't. I, I, it's going to affect my health at this point. I got to take a break, and so so and that's and that's when I said enough's enough. And because uh, I you know I had all these deals queued up and each one would 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 you know kind of fall apart. So it was very very frustrating. You know, looking back, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, it, it was just time to go. Um, it, it was because ev- everything everything had just changed with the dynamic of me not being able to really kind of do what I wanted anymore. So. There's a little kind of detail on that. And there's a million stories in between there, but that's the top line.
0: Wow. <laughs> that that is crazy. the the one of the truly sad things about that to me is that you made your first game entirely yourself. You did the programming and the writing and all that stuff. And uh, just negotiating like international business deals for years sounds like not why you started doing this.
1: Yeah, no, no. I actually didn't mind some of the negotiations because I kind of it was a bit of an intellectual uh, exercise, uh, so part of me enjoyed it. And usually, you get some really, really bright people on the other side, so it was it, it, it could be fun at times. So I didn't I didn't hate all of that. I actually enjoyed parts of it, but other parts, no, I, I didn't. That's not what I signed up for. You remind you reminded me very early on. I had this. I I would pay anything to have this 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 uh, conversation on audio. But I had a guy working for me. His name was. It, this is before Interplay it was called Boone Corporation. So this guy named Jerry Sherman, who has a, a a Ph.D. in mathematics from Princeton, right? Like super genius, smart. So he's one of the guys I'm managing, right? Which is you know, I mean, he's teaching me a hell of a lot more than I'm teaching him. So, but I'm just fascinated because he's just so darn smart. But so he gets in the, in, the, in a negotiation over on his contract with uh, with Greg Fishbeck's brother and if you don't remember Greg Fishbeck was the CEO of Acclaim so he has a brother who's a big entertainment lawyer Bernie Fishbeck very he's actually a nice guy but he's tough I mean he's a tough Hollywood lawyer but those two negotiating right you got the phd versus the lawyer and 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 i have to say jerry the phd just killed him right because he <laughs> he would like trap he, you could see like a chess game like you say something and bernie would say something he trap him to the corner of his logic and then boom he'd pound on him and of course bernie would just say well we're not doing it anyway right he just oh trump it by saying we're not doing <laughs> it it was great it was great so so I think of those kind of stories as, as kind of fun. I, I have wonderful negotiating stories with, with my lawyers. My my general counsel at Interplay for a while. He used to be a stand up comedian, and <laughs> oh god, he was great. He if they were ever like me and me, and he would start to rip on them, and they wouldn't even see it, and, and I, I'd have to walk out of the room. I'd be laughing so hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, that does sound exciting. Yeah, I it was
1: very, very entertaining. <laughs> I, I, I look. I've been I've been I've been in negotiations where I had to break up fistfights. I mean, wow, I'm telling you, it, it gets it gets nuts up.
0: Has the culture of that negotiation side of the game industry changed significantly since you know you started doing that in the '90s?
1: You know, I haven't been involved in much negotiations like that anymore, so I, I wouldn't be a good one to comment on that. Okay. But they, they can become very heated, no doubt. I'll, t- I'll tell you one kind of a fun story. So I was, I was, uh, so Virgin wasn't able to or wasn't paying us. And they were my distributor in Europe. So if you take away 40% of a company's revenues and not pay them, they're going to go out of business. So I said, look, now." and Titus is not a conflict because they own 51% of Virgin and 40-some-odd percent of us of Interplay. So they're like, I said, I'm going to breach them. They said, you, you can't breach them. I said, I have no choice but to breach them because they're not paying us. And a distributor has no value. If they have no content, so if you kill the content guy, the distributor dies. You could kill the distributor and still be okay with the content guy, but not the other way around. So this will go round and round. So I, I said, well, that's it. I'm flying to Europe. I'm going to sign someone else. I got people interested. So I get on the plane, fly there, I get off the plane, and I'm. Uh, I, and, and usually, like like I ha- there was like a driver that would take me to my to my hotel. So I get off the plane. There's the guy holding up the sign, Mister Fargo. So I go, I walk over, I said, I'm him. He says, good, you're served. <laughs> and oh my I, God. Yeah. And I'm not, I haven't even slept. I'm like, what the hell is this? I, and it, it basically says that if I try to solicit signing someone else, they're going to put me in jail. Right. And so I said, well, I don't care. I'm gonna, I don't give a shit. I'm going to sign someone up because I'm not going to let my company go out of business. So I'm literally running around, even though I got this order that they're going to put me in jail if I dare to talk to anybody. So I'm talking to InfoGrom and, and other people. Trying to sign up another distributor while they're trying to leverage me with this uh,
0: with this court order. So, so, there's another kind of fun little story. Jeez, yeah, that is insane. I, <laughs> um, different kind of craziness, but it reminds me of when I talked to Richard Garriott, and he told me about uh, he'd be in publishing meetings, and people would just be like snorting coke off the off the negotiation desk. No, wow, yeah. that's pretty crazy. <laughs> maybe, maybe the early '80s were a little crazier. Yeah,
1: that sounds like that sounds like a, that sounds like a uh, Sierra. <laughs>
0: <story>. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't remember. I'm not sure if he named names. Uh, but yeah, that's that stuff is really interesting, and that's definitely something that as a you're never going to get exposure to that if you're just a consumer of games. You know?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. The behind the scenes stuff is fascinating. You know, the the deals that go on and the, kind of the personalities behind it. Whenever I do business in Europe, in London, it was like a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> people yelling and screaming and spitting you know it was was great drama i had one guy uh, uh, frank herman from sega he was on the titus board and i went over there one time he was just like a guy richie villain and he was just pounding and frothing at the mouth and his face was red and he's cussing at me just going on so he goes through his whole tirade i said frank if i was 25 years old that would have scared the shit out of me but I kind of been through this, so save it. <laughs> Let's just get to the facts. Stop it, please. You know, but it was very funny.
0: Wow. I so i wonder if this is uh if these stories are specific to the game industry, or if um the entertainment industry negotiations are just kind of like this.
1: I bet they're worse. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they're worse than that business.
0: It sounds like not just from your stories, but from some other developers that I've spoken with, that part of the issues in publishing negotiations can come from just an ignorance of the technical game development process. Do you find that's the case where um, you're trying to talk to people? And I think you've alluded to this before in the conversation, but you're trying to explain to people why why something isn't possible and they don't get the technical argument of why.
1: Well, that's a complicated one because, you know, often, you know, first of all, when you talk about publishers, right, like there's some very smart people that work in publishers and there's people that I like. So I'm always careful. I not like I write off publishers because that's a completely unfair thing to do. Sure. But there's a, there's a dynamic that gets set that is, is the problem more than anything. So we would my technical director here is a great guy. and He's super smart. He's smarter than I am. OK, but he's not a producer. Like he 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 would he I wouldn't put him in charge of producing a game because you make all these technical assumptions and trade offs and guesses and, and there's a lot of other things that go on beyond the raw technical parts of it but sometimes the raw technical parts do rear its head and there's a time where I have said you know what, I know you guys can do it anyway, and I'll challenge them, and then they'll do it. But other times they'll say stuff, and I'll go, yeah, let's punt that and move another direction. And so it's a, it's, it's a series of judgment calls you need to make all day. So what what ha- what could happen with a publisher is two things, like you said. They might give you we, – we would often get producers that were not technically savvy or hadn't played a lot of games, and so they'd try to make judgment calls that I knew were a mistake, so that would be difficult – or they would send a guy down that was really really savvy, smart as hell, but he was so narrow focused that he could technically be right but ruining the product at the same time. So so there is it, it's it's kind of a case by case.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that it is a multifaceted problem. In the end there's these two business entities, right, that are just trying to do the best things for themselves.
1: Right, right. And so again, but but that's why I say it always comes back to trust right you've got to trust me and what i'm doing and me making those decisions on a day by day basis you know I, I i would tell one of my publishers before that look you know i couldn't manage your company in california i don't care how good an executive i was i could i have to be there in the halls and see the faces and and catch the conversations that you weren't even supposed to be in, but you just happen to catch him, and you were able to affect something. So there, there, there there's a kind of a, a movement, a, a flow of conversation you want to be in. The same thing is the other way. So when they try to manage the product, uh, micromanage it from a long ways away, it, it just doesn't work well, and, and it leaves you back. Again, this is how I did. You got to just you have to trust the people. Uh, at, at Interplay, we all we'd have developers that would miss their milestones, and, and I would have guys in my group. I would have my CFO or my lawyer saying, you know, Brian, they haven't they haven't hit the milestone. We, I don't think we should pay them. And I said, well, you know, you're right, you're right, but let's not pretend we're not making their payroll. If they had a hundred million dollars in the bank or whatever, we, we could have the conversation, and then they probably wouldn't care. So, or the alternative is they don't have a hundred million dollars in the bank or anything close there too, and so we need to make their payroll. And so you can't tell people that they're going to go home to their spouse and say they don't get a paycheck this month because we missed our milestone. It's just not realistic. So do we want to kill this game? Everybody? No, no. then pay them. And that's how you do it
0: yeah. do you do you think if the contracts were set up differently to like I'm just wondering if the deal could be set up in such a way that that would uh, incentivize trust because the developer's success is tied so closely to the publisher's success.
1: Mm, I don't know. I don't, th- I don't know if that dynamic, I mean, I, I mean, there's always been plenty of upside in these deals for, for developers. Uh, and, and there'd be products where, yeah, I, I, I mean, to me, you, you, either trust and, and, and I think it also comes down to like, do you fundamentally believe there's such a thing as talent? Because if you don't fundamentally believe that, then you're going to treat them a certain way. And so I think it comes down to a corporate attitude.
0: Interesting. um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears again on you and talk about um, uh, recent projects, Kickstarter. Yep. Um, in your introductory post for the kicking it forward concept, you wrote, um, quote, I would say the last week has been the high watermark of my career, end quote. Uh, it must have been pretty amazing to receive such strong support for Wasteland 2 so quickly, but I'm wondering um, specifically, what was it about that time which to you made it the high point of your career?
1: When when Interplay was popular, there wasn't really much from a social media perspective. So I, it wasn't clear how many people really knew of my accomplishments and what I had done. I mean, kind of right, but a lot of people had just heard of Interplay, and so when I was out working to try to get deals done, I would often I'd run into people that they wouldn't have a, a strong history of Interplay. It was always kind of a funny starting point when I I'd, I'd say because like. I don't mind to no, know, and I, I keep my ego in check and everything else. But you want to start off like, well, you know, let's start talking about some of the role playing games, uh, you know, Wasteland, blah blah. I haven't heard of it, haven't heard of it, haven't heard of it. So you're like, gosh, I don't even. <laughs> the rest of my pitch is going to be pretty weak if you haven't heard of any of those titles. <laughs> uh, so, so when I, so I felt like to some degree that interplay was going to kind of get lost to the annals of time there, right, to the sands of time. And so when I went out. It was a whole bunch of people saying, "We remember this stuff, Brian, and we like the work we did, and we trust you." It doesn't get better than that.
0: Yeah, it's it's very odd to me that someone could be in a in the position to work a publishing deal and not know about Interplay's games. That seems odd to me.
1: I don't know. Listen, you you know we you know there's there's a there's a bunch of people now. Like right? it's like uh, I read that. Uh, what paul mccartney did at rock band because their grandchildren didn't know who the beatles were (laughs) oh wow and and we're certainly no beatles so you know it's easy to get lost
0: quickly so uh you know if you don't stay relevant you you will get lost um here here's something i love to ask very experienced developers like yourself if you could go back in time to 1982 and give 20 year old brian fargo some advice or mentoring what would you say to him
1: Uh, I would tell him to stay very focused on a category of products and just dominate in that group. I think, I I look, I look at the difference between Blizzard and Interplay in that, you know, Blizzard, they, they, they stayed pretty tightly focused and, uh, we, we got drawn into the allure of, of of trying too many different things. And if we'd stayed more focused, I think it would have been a different outcome.
0: What do you think your focus would have been? Would it, would it have been those role-playing games? Probably, yeah. yeah. You, you've done some work that I know you're very passionate about, but you, you are a resilient guy, and you've also done ports, contracted work, and on projects that I don't think that you are wildly passionate about. Uh, what has kept you in the industry through those periods?
1: Uh, yeah, I know. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. You know, I've uh, I love the art form of the business. You know, when I when I look at and play products, I just can't help but see something that really gets me excited and I think, gosh, if I could put those two pieces together, that would be really something interesting. So I, I'm just I'm just a fan of this business. The people are great. You know, I get to work with a group of people here that everybody's really smart and they're very ethical and they're very passionate you know and you know you, when you're out in the real world and you're telling people you get to work with a group like that they say must be nice because most people don't get to work in businesses that where everybody around them it, it has those kind of qualities
0: where, where do you see Exile moving in the next 5 or 10 years or so what uh what longer term plan are you adhering to
1: after just asking my, my question about what I would tell my earlier self yeah <laughs> <laughs> well um I'm gonna just stay very tightly focused I, I don't want I don't want to be a big company I have no aspirations for that I love our size right now uh, you know we're we're like we're just about 40 people and there's a wonderful dynamic everybody knows each other's name uh, there's no real middle management or thinking somebody else will solve a problem because there's the company's so big so we're super efficient and I think so, so. So I'm going to stay tightly focused. I don't want to become big. And what I'd really like to do is build up some really great brands, and then and then start to mix that up with some experimentation. You're not going to see where everything we do is just a sequel of something that's been done before. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll start to mix it up, but also have enough brands that I can you know c- kind of come back and revisit them from time to time and and make sure they're fresh and interesting. Without that forced march that I had talked about, because to me the most important thing is the brands, more than anything. And and role playing game consumers, they're a tough crowd. I mean, they are cynical and tough. But if you really put the passion in and the time and make it special, they'll you know they they appreciate it and they notice it. So so it's well worth it. I have no lack of stories to uh, talk about the business that's for sure
0: <laughs> no I'm glad I, I like those those stories are the kinds of things you don't hear you know in other formats so that was good uh, no,
1: that's true it's true yeah and I don't mind like I said like on the publisher side you know you you don't like to talk about it too much because I remember
0: because because I
1: make fun of the publishers and 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 some people will think you're just kind of complaining about it to me, but to me they're more like they're fun they're interesting stories, but it it helps give you a sense of. Kind of the, the the atmosphere more than anything uh, that 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 some of the developers have to deal with. I mean, again, I don't have to deal with it anymore, but I'll sometimes I'll go to lunch with my developer friends, and they'll tell me stories that are just as crazy the ones I told you, and I'll just I
0: just smile and say, I sure don't miss those days. Yeah, I always kind of wonder about the level of animosity, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you see something like the wasteland two Kickstarter video, and you're not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, If it's like fun, satirical, or if it's if there's like anger behind it, I guess.
1: I I was channeling a little bit, perhaps. (laughs) Maybe because I I, I pretty much had a variant of every conversation I had in there. Really, it it was uh, it was it was it was was absolutely wild. But yeah, even the crazy stuff where we we'd pitch and then you wouldn't hear anything, and I'm like, okay, well, it's okay if it's a no. I just want to tell my guys or learn why. It's a no, so that I can learn from the experience. Yeah. Right? Like, and I remember one time I had a great conversation with Lucas, and they said, You know, we don't like doing high fantasy. We just don't. I don't know why I like it, but as a company, we don't do high fantasy. Okay. I, you know, I don't have to agree with their reason, but at least they gave me one, right? I respect that. Yeah. But in other companies, you couldn't get a reason. And so it would, it would just drive you crazy. You know, and so, well, nobody even seemed to even know why or be able to articulate why. So it was, it was just a bizarre process.
0: That is pretty strange. I, well, you call the publisher in the Kickstarter video. It's like metrics publishing,
1: <laughs> metric so, publishing, yeah.
0: metric publishing. Did you ever get knows that were based on metrics like that, where they tried to quantify the business impact of like a creative choice of, you know, what the gender of the protagonist was or something like that?
1: Well, I would get comments, you know, that, you know, the, well, you know, we, we, because we had like this really wonky look for one of our products, we were, it was this bizarre sort of uh, Baron Munchausen kind of weird looking thing. And they say you know people are you know statistically are not attracted to or they they turn away from ugly people. And it's like you know, or 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 it would just be you'd give this big pitch that I thought was great, and they'd say, "How many items are in the game?" <laughs> and you're like, "That's not." really relevant yet i mean that's not that's not so that so so yeah so you get these odd questions i i had one one analyst i was explain. he was he said everything's metrics everything's a b testing period end of story and i was talking about the idea of fun you know i say you guys call it stickiness we call it fun and so you can't quantify it all he goes that's just a theory <laughs> wow. so the the concept of fun was just a theory to him that could be tested so, it, it was it was like so so you you you'd get in those those kind of conversations.
0: It seems like the the core problem of funding any type of entertainment is that you're striving for a target fun, which is just really difficult to quantify. It's odd to me that some people are not comfortable with that or try and explain that away.
1: It's like a, it's like, a, like it's a robot trying to break it down. Yeah, you know, and and it's it's hard, right? So so you know when, when they're trying to quantify it i'm sure it's very difficult because you got to get it get in there craft it and feel it and you know i I read there's a great book by pixar called creativity inc and they said every pixar movie in the beginning stinks yeah so so let's start with that premise right that's pixar so we're we're no different every one every game starts off when you first get it in is horrible so then you got to start tweaking and crafting it to get it there and so you need you need latitude in order to do so Anyway, I could wax poetic, but uh, i got to call my lawyer back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, thanks again. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure. It was fun. Thanks, Brian. Music and audio engineering is provided by Michael Ibrahim. For more of Michael's music, please go to carboncitylights.com. If you enjoyed this interview, be sure to subscribe and to check out memoryleakinterviews.com. MemoryLeak currently does not accept donations, but if you'd like to support the podcast, please tell a friend, rate the show on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or follow the Memory Leak Twitter account.